every time I'd go out on a walk or a hike, I would all of a sudden like halfway start to feel my legs go a little numb. I'd feel really like dizzy and faint and I got dehydrated to the point where one time in the summer, luckily my roommate was with me and she was a med student at the time. So I felt pretty safe noticed that I was totally out of it and she took me into the ER and I remember just laying down in the ER for an hour waiting and just thinking like oh my god like am I gonna die like I had so much anxiety. I would be paralyzed in the morning I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. I was rock climbing a lot and I had some severe joint pain in my left shoulder and so I actually went to physio at U of T Health Services and they said oh you you just tore your del- your deltoid muscle and I was like okay that was pretty pretty shocking but I thought it kind of makes sense like with the amount of pain that I'm experiencing so I stopped climbing and then a few weeks later I randomly had really severe joint pain in my right wrist but that was the opposite side that my shoulder with my deltoid was and so I thought okay something something weird is going on. It was a really difficult time, I think, for me to be getting diagnosed when there was just so many different things happening in my life. But I think that's also kind of a common trigger for people to have symptoms, right, during stressful times. What you've just heard are anecdotes from students at the University of Toronto who have an autoimmune disease. Because autoimmune diseases are so complex and can have an effect on multiple tissues in the body, they have a profound effect on that individual's life. In this episode, we'll dive into the science behind autoimmunity with clinicians and scientists here at the University of Toronto. And we'll also discuss why these conditions are so complex. We'll debunk some of the popular misconceptions about autoimmunity. You'll also hear from past and present U of T students who share what it's like to live with an autoimmune disease. Bonnie is especially attached to this episode because she also has an autoimmune disease, so she's yeah. done a lot of research into. Yeah, so she knows more than me. Maybe. I don't think yeah, so. we're, we're gonna find out. <laughs> yeah. That's Dr. Ken Quateru. He's a gastroenterologist at Mount Sinai Hospital and a professor here at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. In his practice, he helps patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, also known as IBD. This is an umbrella term for a group of diseases that are characterized by chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. Some of these diseases have an autoimmune component, and his lab explores how intestinal inflammation can be regulated by the immune system. We asked him to define autoimmune diseases for us. That's one of those open-ended questions when someone says, can you talk about autoimmune disease? Because people use that term in a way that's not very specific. Almost any inflammatory disease and many other diseases that people haven't thought about is now being considered autoimmune disease. But officially, the term refers to diseases that occur because your immune system is attacking your body, yourself. And, you know, those are only a very few select number of diseases that fall into that specific definition. Nonetheless, we are dealing with a lot of other diseases where there is chronic inflammation, where the mechanism doesn't appear to be specifically your immune system attacking yourself, but there is other triggers like attacking bacteria in your gut or food in your gut. Classical autoimmune diseases refer to diseases such as lupus, multiple sclerosis, and type 1 diabetes. These are diseases where the tissue or the cellular component of the body that is targeted by the body's immune system is known. 
Dr. Quattaru mainly deals with diseases that are inflammatory in nature, and some of these do have an autoimmune component, but the cause of this autoreactivity is not known. Crohn's disease is a very good example of this. We will come back to his research later, but now we're going to hear some experiences from students at the University of Toronto who have autoimmune diseases. Bonnie and Johanna, you guys have lived together for how long? It, almost a, a year. Yeah, it's yeah. been approaching a year now. Yeah. yeah. And so when and how many people live in this house? There's five of us. Yes, five of us. <laughs> and three of you have chronic autoimmune diseases. Yes, correct. And so how did you guys figure that out? That's so weird, right? That is weird. Yeah, I I feel like one or maybe Reem was talking about it originally and then no one had talked about it specifically. But then when Bonnie got her diagnosis, I think that's when we all like collected in the kitchen one day and then we just started talking about it. And I think that was like sometime in April. So what Johanna is saying is true, but actually when I first moved in, I had absolutely no idea that she and another person in our house had an autoimmune disease. So when I had my first flare up, I was like, I was literally pretty much doing everything that I could to hide what was going on. I would make these ridiculous excuses, like the reason why I was limping or the reason why I was was lying in bed all the time is because I'd injured myself so severely climbing. But it got to the point where my disease had progressed so much that I couldn't use my hands. So I couldn't do simple tasks like open jars, turn on faucets. I couldn't walk. And I think actually the point when I couldn't walk was when people really in my house really started to realize like, you know, something some something really serious is going on. And I actually remember I was sitting on the, the couch and my joints had stiffened so much while I was there that I, I couldn't get up. So I was stuck there for hours. And Johanna and my other roommate came home and they came into the living room. So at that point, I really couldn't do anything to avoid them. And they basically asked me, like, are you all right? Because you're not acting like yourself. You're limping all the time. And you're just you're not doing the things that you usually do. And I was pretty hesitant, but I realized like, you know what, I just got to tell them and I think things will, I think things will be okay. And so I told them like, you know, I've been having serious health issues. My doctor thinks that I have either early onset rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, but right now it's just undifferentiated arthritis. And it was kind of funny because they turned back at me and they're like, you know what, it's okay because we both have autoimmune diseases too. And honestly, I'm I'm forever grateful for such a wonderful support system that they, they give me. And really, things have, have really looked up from there. And so you have lupus. I have right now. I think my doctor specifies it as undifferentiated arthritis because I have symptoms that are similar to lupus, but I also have sim- symptoms that are similar to early onset rheumatoid arthritis. And yeah, so lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease. And basically your body mistakes its own tissues as something foreign and it attacks it. And so the main organs affected are your joints, kidneys, skin, lungs, and heart. And so a lot of people with lupus experience severe joint pain and they can also present with this sort of butterfly rash around their face. That's that's pretty common. And then in more serious cases, their kidneys can become so severely inflamed to the point where they may need a kidney transplant. And then for rheumatoid arthritis, it's a little bit different because this is an autoimmune disease, but it's not a systemic autoimmune disease. So the main organs that are affected are the joints in your fingers, 
There can be systemic complications like cardiovascular disease, but swollen finger joints are the most common. And basically this chronic inflammation in your fingers can eventually lead to loss of function and severe deformity. And obviously this comes with a tremendous amount of pain and swelling. And Johanna, you have? I have a ankylosing spondylitis, okay, which is a type of arthritis that affects uh, the vertebrae of your spine and your sacroiliac joint. It can also affect peripheral joints such as uh, your knees, your ankles, uh, shoulders. Typically, you feel pain and um, stiffness in these joints. And over the progression of the disease, if it gets uh quite serious it could also lead to an overgrowth in bone in your spine and that could lead to a stooped posture and um, I'm an interesting case as well because I don't present most of the symptoms that people normally present which is like you know tension in the back of your spine and you could get bone fusion in the spine but for me it primarily attacked my left knee and it was just real bad pain and it felt like it was paralyzing the first on onset and then I started getting pain in my right ankle as well and so how did you get diagnosed actually so that was five or six years yeah. ago uh, originally I felt some pain I just vaguely remember when I was like 18 or so in high school I remember feeling some pain while I was working I used to work at McDonald's at the time I do a lot of physical work so I'd be bending in certain directions and and I played soccer too as well and that that uh, required being in different positions and flexing your joints in certain ways and I just remember gradually feeling this pain in my knee and I remember f that was in 2011 I remember starting uni the pain just got increasingly worse I remember that particular summer I guess it was summer of 2011 I started having the inability to do certain exercises and that was bothersome to me so then I went to my family physician in Kitchener. My family's from Kitchener-Waterloo originally. And he sent me to go do physiotherapy. I did physiotherapy or so for like, I want to say four months. And this would have been the summer after first year of uni. And that didn't really help. Like my symptoms were really bad. I would be paralyzed in the morning. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. While I was waiting to get into a rheumatologist, yeah, I was just experiencing that pain and doing physiotherapy. And that really wasn't helping. So eventually I did a lot of blood work and I did an MRI scan and got an appointment with a rheumatologist. She did all like the necessary blood work, um, x-ray scans. And then I was able to get my diagnosis and we worked from there. And how long was it from when you first started experiencing symptoms to when you like finally got your diagnosis I want to say it was like eight months or a so long time, a long yeah. time like it was horrible like I remember not knowing like how to f function almost so oh my God. yeah and yeah. what was your experience it, it, was, it was very similar for me so I'm a really big rock climber and so uh, this happened to me probably yeah around March April of this year I was rock climbing a lot and I had some severe joint pain in my left shoulder. And so I actually went to physio at U of T Health Services and they said, oh, you, you just tore your deltoid muscle. And I was like, okay, that was pretty, pretty shocking. But I thought it kind of makes sense, like with the amount of pain that I'm experiencing. So I stopped climbing. And then a few weeks later, I randomly had really severe joint pain in my right wrist. But that was the opposite side that my shoulder with my deltoid was. And so I thought, okay, something something weird is going on so I, I stopped exercising I was just relaxing like icing it heating it and pretty much doing everything I could to get the pain to go away but nothing happened and so a few weeks after that I started to get 
joint I actually had polyarthritis in 28 joints so all the joints of my fingers toes my shoulder elbows and knees and it kept getting progressively worse like pretty much overnight and one day I woke up and I was just completely immobile like I couldn't move and because I have a a background in autoimmunity my primary area of research is rheumatoid arthritis I thought okay I need to see a rheumatologist ASAP wait so you had already been doing research in rheumatology yeah. and uh, autoimmune diseases and then you were diagnosed with yeah <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis it's pretty ironic oh but it's true yeah <laughs> and like Johanna was saying, it, it kind of scared me because I was already aware of the fact that generally when you start presenting symptoms, you can be diagnosed up to six to eight months after. And you're if you are not able to have some sort of connection to see a rheumatologist or a specialist, you're pretty much sitting there having no idea what's going on. So luckily for me, my lab manager's partner also has lupus. So I was lucky enough to, I, I described to her my symptoms and she said, you have to go see my rheumatologist immediately because I had already explained to them that for those two weeks where I was pretty much completely immobile, like I had to be in, a, I had to go in a wheelchair to the hospital. I couldn't even move. I would get to the hospital and they just would not take me seriously. They basically just, they actually ended up prescribing me pain medication for after you come out of a severe surgery because I was in that much pain, but they wouldn't prescribe me any DMARDs or or anything that you need to slow the progression. progression. So yeah, I feel very fortunate to have known her and she got me in to see a specialist. And it's funny because when I first went to UFT Health Services, that was back in March, April, I actually have my referral for a specialist from them in like three weeks. So that's like almost seven months. So as you've just heard, it can be really difficult to get a clear diagnosis for an autoimmune disease, even if you're living in Canada. But it can be even more difficult when you're on a medical mission trip halfway across the world like Vanessa was. Vanessa is a first-year master's student at the University of Toronto, and she shares her incredible story of how she was diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease. So Vanessa, how were you diagnosed with the disease? So I'll give you a little bit of a backstory so you have some context. So back in May, I went on a medical mission trip to Ecuador. Mm -hmm. And through this trip, we did many, many different campaigns, especially in rural areas. And throughout the trip, I was very, very underweight and I wasn't eating enough. I went to the, the coordinator and I said, I think I think I need to go home. Like I'm really dehydrated. I feel really sick. So at that time, I probably should have gone home, but instead we ended up going to a Cuenca, this really highly elevated area in Ecuador. I had this mindset where I was like, oh, I can stick it out. Like, <laughs> like I'll be fine. And halfway up, we went to this uh, road stop doctor's office and he prescribed me some gravel. So I was like totally knocked out <laughs> as I was going up the mountains. And <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting. Finally got there and I, yeah, I didn't really enjoy the views or anything. I was pretty much just stuck in bed a couple days Aww. and they kept on checking on me. Um, upon returning home, I went to the ER there okay. and just to be safe, they said, in case you do have an infection, they prescribed me another dose of antibiotics. So <laughs> I had a really big allergic reaction after that. I think it was like sulfas or something that they prescribed me and I broke out in a full body rash. So 
that was that was fun it took a little while to heal after getting back from ecuador um mm-hmm. but ever since i noticed i didn't feel right something was wrong with my body i knew it every time i'd go out on a walk or a hike i would all of a sudden like halfway start to feel my legs go a little numb i'd feel really like dizzy and faint and i got dehydrated to the point where one time in the summer luckily my roommate was with me and she was a med student at the time so i felt pretty safe noticed that I was totally out of it and she took me into the ER and I remember just laying down in the ER for an hour waiting and just thinking like oh my god like am I gonna die like I had so much anxiety and there they provided me with more fluids and said you're just dehydrated but I was like why why Mm -hmm. is my body like this like what's what's happening there's something going on I booked an appointment with my family physician And this was near the end of summer, so it took a long time to actually get into my family physician's office. And I went, and I remember being really upset and just, like, really anxious. I didn't really know what was going on. And he said, well, I'm diagnosing you with um, anxiety. I can prescribe you benzodiazepines, and that'll you know, help you write your MCAT, because on top of all this stress, I was going to write my MCAT for (laughs) medical school. and sent me on my way and of course I was like no I think something else is going on I I don't want medication so he referred me to an endocrinologist and so you sort of had to press your GP to yeah sort of refer you to someone yep more specialized exactly yeah yeah. I had to say I know I think this is hormonal this is endocrine right so um then he referred me to an endocrinologist which took a couple months then in I think it might have been November or December, I finally went and got some blood work done. And by then, like before even stepping into my endocrinologist's office, I seen the blood work myself through Life Labs, which Mm -hmm. I think is important for people with autoimmune diseases to have access to their blood work to kind of monitor everything. And I knew right off the bat because I like being a pre-med I was already researching on like Wikipedia like what does this mean (laughs) like WebMD oh my god but yeah I found out that it was Hashimoto's Mm -hmm. so it's called Hashimoto's thyroiditis Mm -hmm. what it is is it's an autoimmune disease which means your body is attacking yourself except in this case your body produces antibodies against your thyroid in particular so what this meant was that this is a lifelong condition and once you switch on the autoimmune genes you can't switch them off it's kind of like a sentence per se and so i stepped into my endocrinologist's office and i already knew you know what he was going to say oh so you knew you had hashimoto's before you even went in to see your endocrinologist and this was through your own research (laughs) yeah based on the stories we've just heard it's pretty obvious that navigating the healthcare system when you have an autoimmune disease is not an easy thing to do And our next guest, Megan, has Crohn's disease, and she's also a recent graduate from medical school here at the University of Toronto. Her dual role in the healthcare field as both a patient and as a physician has given her some insight into why this is such a difficult feat. Having a perspective from the other side, do you see young people come into the clinic like in similar circumstances that you were previously in and and like see them struggle navigating the healthcare system or finding a specialist? I mean, I think there's two pieces to that. And I think the first piece is that young people in general just don't have a good connection to the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in general, after like our well baby checks and we turn like five or six, we often don't really see the doctor unless we have kind of an acute illness. So a lot of people don't really have 
a really clear connection to the healthcare system. And obviously with the shortage of family doctors, some people don't even have a family doctor that they could go see. So I think that's one really big barrier for people. And I think especially for somebody who's used to being healthy, there is often that aspect of denial or kind of minimizing of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I think that almost creates another barrier. It's kind of like, well, I'm, I am, you know, 18. Like what really could be wrong with me, right? So some people, even if they have a good connection with their GP, sometimes the, the wait times to see a specialist or can be a huge barrier. Like if you're left for months, like with the symptoms that you had, it would have been like a pretty uncomfortable first year of undergrad, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, I think the challenging thing about our healthcare system is we do very well with acute care in general, and we don't do so well with kind of more chronic care. So I think, unfortunately, like a lot of the time, these kinds of things get diagnosed in a more acute stage or things are moved along quicker when things get to this point where somebody's quite it's, ill. Yeah, it's more of an emergency. Uh, so I think certainly if I had kind of gone to see somebody at the beginning of that two or three months where I was having symptoms, I think that it might have been a long wait. Yeah. But I think kind of when I got a bit, I think my symptoms got worse. I think things probably could have been moved along quicker. But I do think that in our healthcare system, certainly wait times are an issue. And that's definitely a challenge in, in getting a diagnosis and then obviously starting treatment from there. Is there a way that you can suggest that, I don't know, it's like a kind of blue sky image, I guess, but is there a way that you could suggest that the healthcare system would change that could, that you could help, I mean, chronic conditions in general, but particularly young, young people who present with these symptoms, is there a better way that they can be managed if they present in the ER, for example? Well, I think the emergency department is a really difficult place to get chronic disease management. I think for like an acute kind of issue like for dehydration or for something related to some of these issues and uh, the emergency department can be a good place to start Mm -hmm. Um, I think having like I said I think having somebody who you know knows about your symptoms and who's been following you along and can kind of see when things are getting worse like a a family physician or a nurse practitioner or somebody who's your kind of go-to person Mm -hmm. um, and they can advocate on your behalf like that's a big part of being a family physician or a primary care provider in general is is knowing when somebody is actually getting sicker or getting or is quite sick and needs to be seen fairly urgently and kind of picking up your phone and calling somebody rather than just sending a referral via fax yeah um which take a lot longer so i think i think it's just good to have that person who can fi- kind of follow you along and and also i think primary care providers are pretty capable of initiating treatment if they have some idea of what the diagnosis might be mm-hmm. um, and then and then referring to their colleagues for kind of further workup and management especially if they need invasive procedures like endoscopy or otherwise. There are a lot of reasons why it's difficult for people to get a clear diagnosis for an autoimmune disease but it's not because these diseases are rare. In fact, the incidence of autoimmune diseases is on the rise. In Ontario, these incidence rates are increasing by 7% each year. We spoke to Dr. Jane Danska, a senior scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children who studies type 1 diabetes. She explains how these increases in incidence of autoimmune diseases could be due to the microbes that live in our gut, also known as the gut microbiome. The interest in it, I think, across many autoimmune diseases, issues from the fact that the frequency of these diseases has increased substantially. 
especially since, say, the, the end of the Second World War. That was my next question. <laughs> so when you have a, a circumstance where you have the frequency of diseases is rapidly increasing or declining, uh, it can't reflect our human genes because our human genes don't change that fast. So it must be reflecting one or more or many elements in our environment that have changed quite rapidly. And since the end of the Second World War, uh, among the many things that have changed in our environment is the advent of enhanced public health, water purification, different ways of producing our food, antibiotics to treat diseases, and antibiotics that are used enormously in agriculture to produce animals, for example, for consumption, as well as other features that allow us to prevent disease. So we've become, our, the hygiene level of our environment has changed dramatically uh, since the end of the Second World War. Uh, many diseases have thankfully declined in incidence during that time. Uh, so diseases like tuberculosis, rheumatic fever, you know, death from scarlet fever, all kinds of diseases have declined in incidence. But coincident with that, we've also seen an increase in the incidences of many autoimmune diseases and type 1 diabetes is an example. I think the, the focus on the microbiome is the recognition that the microbes that we live with in such an intimate way are very agile sensors of our environment. So the composition of the microbes in your gut today would, could change substantially if you got on an airplane and went to Thailand for a holiday. You would be then exposed to many different organisms that you don't normally see. You would probably start eating a different, a different diet, spices, all kinds of things. And the microbes in your gut would respond to those changes. Okay. So if the microbes in our gut can respond to those changes, is it also possible for the, the complete composition of the microbes in our gut to change? Like have different bacterial strains, things like that? Or is that not really possible so, in a I short mean, time frame? Strains, strain, at the strain level, things uh, there may be lots of variation. That's the hardest part uh, to detect. So I wouldn't say complete. The, the organisms may change in terms of which taxonomic names they have. Uh, but the key thing is what's their core functionality? What do they do? What do they right. make? And that's what changes in response to the nutritional components that you provide to them because we're feeding, we're feeding our microbiome. They right. are living as essentially parasites on us. We provide the food source. But they provide uh, a massive and complex number of metabolites that they make. They are very important for harvesting nutrients from our food. They generate vitamins that we can't make ourselves. They generate amino acids that we don't make ourselves. So they, they produce a lot for us, and we feed them. So if you change your diet, if you change aspects of your environment, there will be perturbations of your microbes. There have been some cool studies where they sent a couple of graduate students on, on my experiment, like to, oh, to wow. Thailand. And okay. of, of course, they got, you know, they ate street food and, yeah. you know, untoward things happened. And when they got back, their microbiome had changed substantially in their gut. But within a month or so, it went back to the pattern that they had before they left okay. for the trip. So there is a stabilization. There's, a, there's a, a stability and resilience to the microbiome. And that's exactly what we want in ecosystems, yeah. resilience. So when you're talking about the different factors that the, the bacteria in our gut can produce, is it possible for these factors to affect immune cells and then those immune cells can potentially migrate to distant sites in the body and affect those sites? 
in in fact, we we know uh, just probably it's this is the tip of the iceberg, but yeah. we 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 absolutely know of metabolic products of bacteria in the gut that directly do affect the immune cells that line the mucosa of the gut. Whether or not, you're, the specific of your question, whether we have identified metabolites produced by gut microbes that then send those cells to some other location, we don't really know if that's the case. But some of those cells have the capacity to move, right. um, and they may also have the capacity to interact with other cells that then move uh, out of those locations. So that so-called trafficking of, yeah. uh, of lymphocytes and, and other, um, other cells of the immune system is an area of intensive interest. We know that when inflammatory events take place in other tissues outside the gut, there is a flooding in of, of cells, uh, of certain kinds of immune cells, to try to confront what's, what the immune system senses to be a, a danger. But whether there is direct traffic from gut-associated white blood cells into the pancreas, we don't, we don't know that. Okay. So then I guess my next question would be, do you think that the attention that the gut microbiome has gotten in, in autoimmunity is deserved? Or do you think that there are other bigger players that researchers should be focusing on for type 1 diabetes or for other autoimmune diseases? Uh, I think that the focus on the microbiome is highly deserved because this is a really complex toolkit. I mean, the, the, the combined gene capacity and, and functional capacity of all of the bugs that are living in your gut right now is hundreds of times larger than all the genes that are in, your regular, in, the, in the human cells in the body. So this is an enormous functional toolkit that we don't understand. And the other thing that I think warrants the, the focus on it is that it can be manipulated. And so in, in starting to coming to understand the rules of engagement, as it were, between microbes and the host, right. both in health and in disease, like autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. are undoubtedly going to provide new avenues of therapeutic manipulation down the line. And so right. I think that there are, some op- there are going to be opportunities to use our knowledge about the microbiome as we build it to provide for better health, uh, potentially for prevention or at least modulation of autoimmune responses, at least in some disease settings. We can modify the microbiome in time as we understand more about how best to do it by either adding or subtracting different microbes or adding and or subtracting different metabolites or metabolite sources that will, again, shape and sculpt that community of microbes. Okay. So yes and yes. The other thing I'm very curious about is, is it possible to actually completely recolonize your gut through the use of eating yogurt, for example? No. Is it? No. You, 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 no. You, you will never completely recolonize your gut. There are always going to be organisms in your gut. They may, right. they may change. They may flux with your, with your age, with your hormonal status, with your diet. The organisms that we consume in yogurt that are often called collectively probiotics with the idea that these are organisms that are, uh, are carrying components that are good for us, um, they are, uh, for the most part, uh, tourist microbes. Okay. They go through us, but they don't become of us. They don't okay. become part of the community and replicate on their own in our community. So in order to have their benefits, if there are benefits, you need to consume them often because they, they pass through. Right. 
Interesting. They were not derived from human gut. Yeah. They were derived yeah. from cows and, and milk products and so exactly. forth. So while they may be quite beneficial or have beneficial uh, components, they don't change, uh, they don't become part of your microbial ecosystem, but they may modify the microbial ecosystem as they pass through. Dr. Danska explained why it's not possible to completely transform our gut microbiome. This is super important to understand because there are many fad diets, supplements, and food items that claim to do exactly this. There are also additional claims that specific diets can trigger or conversely help with the management of of autoimmune diseases. We asked Dr. Kwataru if any of these diets, whether they be low-fat, high-fiber, vegan, or gluten-free, had any effect on promoting autoimmunity or to help with managing autoimmune diseases. So there's a lot of hypotheses, thoughts out there. Uh, The Internet's full of ideas on this. Mm -hmm. But actually, clear data that tells us these are bad diets or good diets is actually sorely lacking. And looking for components of our human diet in human beings that make your inflammation better or worse is a very difficult experiment to do. You actually have to take people and lock them up and be sure about everything they put in their mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there is a lot of interesting data from mostly pediatric patients with Crohn's who, as part of their treatment, will feed themselves elemental diets. And what an elemental diet is, is that a diet that's been pre-digested for you, so it's down to the basic amino acids. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to do any work. Your gut just absorbs it quickly, and almost nothing else comes out at the other ends, put it bluntly. Oops. <laughs> Correct. And it's amazing how those kids respond to that diet. Oh, no way. Now, the problem is that when they go back to eating food, real food, their inflammation tends to come back. But we're learning from that experiment, if you like, or that treatment approach to patients, to kids, that there must be something in that that will help us guide dietary management. But right now, we really aren't able to rely just on dietary management for treatment of these diseases. And do you see in your clinic, because there are all these diet fads. Diets, fad yeah. diets that are on social media, in newspapers and magazines, etc. When patients come to you, what do you see? Do you see them like trying to modify their diets? Do you what do you advise them to do when it comes to like diet, exercise, wellness in general? You know, it's one of the more difficult things that I have to deal with and probably everyone who and, deals with these patients. And people must come to you with like all sorts of different hypotheses that they've come up with themselves oh, yeah. and and anyway, continue. Well, absolutely. I think you're saying exactly what the experience is. It's almost daily. And in in fact, uh, this morning I had a clinic and there was one patient who was saying, you know, what should I do? What should I not eat? And it's hard to tell them, well, there really isn't any clear indication that what you're eating is making a big difference. Now, that's different than when someone comes to me and say, you know, I'm on a gluten-free diet. I don't have celiac disease, but I have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and I'm on a gluten-free diet and it's helping me. So you, know, you have to work with your patients. Well, if it's helping you do and, it. The, and, and the diet's not bad for you, mm-hmm. then do it. Exactly. So whatever you figure works for you. And I have, you know, everything, the spectrum is going vegan to or just avoiding red meat. Plant-based diets. To gluten free diets, which are not easy diets to follow, et cetera, et cetera, where you, you know, you sort of say, you know, work with what you can. You have to live your life too as you're going through this. And if this works for you and, you know, 
then go for it. But if you're going to ask me, well, has anyone done the study to show that this actually does do something different? Mm. Well, no, we haven't. Either we haven't done the study, we haven't done it well enough, or we just don't know. In addition to diet, leaky gut syndrome is also something that is propagated by the media to trigger autoimmunity. As Dr. Quattaru puts it, it's a contentious topic because it's something that's not taught in medical school. And frankly, most people aren't even sure if it exists. Here are his thoughts on the topic. So the question that I'm super curious about is, can you talk about leaky gut syndrome, whether or not it's actually a real thing? And also whether or not if leaky gut syndrome is a real thing, can it be caused by eating relatively normal foods? Or does this syndrome result from IBD or other autoimmune diseases? So it's, a, it's an interesting concept that is not really in our medical textbooks. So it's always hard to talk to it because probably what you're thinking is leaky gut is different than what you're thinking is leaky gut. That's different than what I think is leaky gut. I have no okay. context for leaky gut, so <laughs> okay, I'm coming so in with a blank that's right. slate. Yeah. You're the one who really knows. So, I mean, in general terms, let us just sort of start by saying, what, what could it be? Well, the idea is that the gut, which is this long tube, is lined by cells that serve as a barrier between the inside world, yourself, and the outside world. And the outside world in that tube is a pretty messy world. So... You can imagine how most of us who are healthy have a barrier that is very effective at keeping the outside world away from the inside world, or at least controlling that interaction. Okay, so now cause holes in that barrier. So maybe that's what leaky gut is. How do you cause holes? How do you know you've caused holes? How do you measure that barrier function? And then whether it is involved in any of these diseases, how do you show that? Or whether it's caused by any of these diseases. Right. So, well, that's not a big surprise if the inflammation is causing holes. But what does that actually mean? Right. So we don't know what that actually means. We know that if you have inflammation, you'll have a leaky gut. Absolutely. But that's not the question. The question is, is the leaky gut something that sets you up for disease? Yeah. So actually, no one has ever done this. So this has been a popular theme in the whole science of inflammatory bowel disease. For years, it's been said that people with inflammatory bowel disease have a leaky gut, and that perhaps if you have a leaky gut, it sets you up for developing disease, but no one's ever done the test the and followed test. those people until they develop disease, until we've done it. Yes. So we haven't published this yet, but there is an element of a leakiness that you can see in healthy people who then go on to develop Crohn's disease. Are you suggesting that some people may have IBD and not know it? Or is it something that you would absolutely know? Well, if you look at someone who develops IBD, at some point in time, they probably had IBD without any symptoms. Then they would not know they had IBD. So it probably has to evolve through stages until you actually get symptoms. That, you know, diarrhea and belly pain and blood in the stool, etc. But go back in time. And how far back in time do you have to go before you see absolutely nothing in someone who will develop IBD, be it in five years or 10 years? And that's the the essence of the GEM project, which I know you guys want to hear about. The GEM project is an initiative to determine the biological mechanisms that predict predisposition to Crohn's disease. The project was launched in 2008 with this simple premise in mind. 
to look for individuals who had Crohn's disease with healthy first-degree relatives and recruit their healthy relatives to collect information on their genetics, environment, and microbiome. Ten years later, 70 out of the initially healthy 5,000 recruits now have Crohn's disease. And so Dr. Kwataru and his team can now look back at the data from when they were healthy to see which aspect of GEM, genetics, environment, and microbiome, predict predisposition to disease. For the genetics component, they took DNA from their subjects and performed SNP, or single nucleotide polymorphism arrays. These arrays give you an idea of what your genotype is. They're similar to what companies like 23andMe use to give you a snapshot of your genetic background. Dr. Quateru and his team also looked at the microbiome of their subjects. They did this by collecting stool samples from each person and extracting DNA from the stool. They're now sequencing this DNA to figure out what types of bacteria are present in each person's GI tract to see if having certain types or missing certain types of bacteria can be linked to the onset of Crohn's. They also tested everyone for gut leakiness. And as Dr. Quateru mentioned before, you can actually see an element of leakiness in the gut before the onset of Crohn's in some individuals. And as for the environmental component, this information is the most difficult to collect. One of the hardest things to do is looking for that environmental trigger, which is the E part of GEM. We know that, for example, here in Ontario, we have the highest rate of Crohn's disease in kids, and it's, it's growing. I was just listening to a talk at noon, 7% a year. It's huge wow. compared to what's in other jurisdictions. So there's something about Canada and Ontario, perhaps more specifically, where we are at an increased risk. Something in the drinking water. Something in the air we breathe or the drinking water. But the question is, how do you go looking for those things when you don't know what you're looking for? Mm -hmm. So we've developed a questionnaire that tries to get to this. And, you know, those are pretty crude ways of assessing this. And equally crude, I will admit, is our ability to understand diet differences. Because diet questionnaires are very unreliable. The fact that people have to recall what they eat, how often they eat it, and how do you correlate that over a lifetime to the point where you're taking your samples and then, you know, when disease occurs. So it's, uh, we have a, a few challenges ahead of us in terms of uh, uh, working with the data that we have. But we have some diet data, and we do have some environmental risk assessment data, and we'll put it together and see where it takes us. But I think where we're most excited uh, about our data is the genetic and the, mic the microbiome data and uh, the uh, leaky gut data. Dr. Danska has a similar research project aimed at identifying type 1 diabetes susceptibility genes. That's a major focus of our work is type 1 diabetes, and this is a, a very targeted tissue-specific autoimmune disease where uh, components of the immune system destroy only a single type of cell in the pancreas called the beta cells, and they're the only cells in the body that can produce insulin in a way, and they're the only cells in the body that produce insulin with sensitivity to glucose or sugar in the, in the system. So it's a glucose-regulated insulin production, and there are no other cells in the body that can do that. So when those cells are destroyed by the immune system, an individual presents with type 1 diabetes. Right. So what, does, what would that look like, like symptoms-wise for people it's, who have type 1 diabetes? It's generally uh, fairly dramatic and, and relatively straightforward to, to, for diagnosis. Uh, individuals often are tired, thirsty, 
They have excessive urination beyond what they normally experience. They may lose weight and feel sort of acutely unwell. Uh, so they present, they, it may start out with the sense that you have a perhaps a viral infection, you just feel really dragged and tired, uh, but the excessive thirst and urination are very commonly seen, and the diagnosis can be made with, a, with urine samples and a couple of other relatively straightforward tests. We are quite interested in understanding more about the products of the gut microbes that are associated with risk for type 1 diabetes. Okay. And we, have, uh, we are collaborating with colleagues in Finland to obtain uh, poop samples from very young children who are already known to have genetic risk factors for type 1 diabetes. And we are taking those poop samples and we are culturing them as a community. Uh, and this we're doing in collaboration with a terrific scientist at the University of Guelph named Emma Allen Verco. Uh, and Dr. Alan Verco is a, is a commens, so-called commensal microbiologist, so she studies the microbes of the human gut. She has some really cool systems for uh, culturing these bugs as an ecosystem, as a group. And we are working together with her to, to look at the actual metabolites that these organisms make, uh, comparing between age-matched kids that either show evidence of progression towards type 1 diabetes or do not, and they're very closely matched to each other. We can match them for different kinds of genetic variants, age, of course, sex. They live in the same cities. Uh, their parents are probably eating some of the same, uh, yeah. same yogurt and so forth. So we have a fairly well-matched sample set, and we can follow them over time. So we're taking microbes, looking at what those microbes make, and then we can also culture the microbes and put them into special mice that truly have no microbes in them. Oh, okay, germ-free. Germ-free mice, and then use those mice to model some of the physiologic consequences of those microbes, looking at the immune system effects that those microbes may have, looking at evidence of type 1 diabetes, because we have a type 1 diabetes-prone mouse strain that we're using uh, among these recipient animals. So we're, we're excited about it because it allows us to go f start with the child, start right. with the at-risk kids, use their samples and information about their biology and genetics to guide our project, and then examine what the microbes are, what they make, what they do, and how they act upon a, a host system, in this case a mouse host system. But ultimately, we would like to, I think we will derive from this study, information about microbes that are associated with risk, information about immune system changes mm -hmm. that are associated with responses to those microbes, and how those may um, drive or maybe slow progression toward type 1 diabetes. Because if we could even find ways to slow progression yeah. by five years because a lot of these kids are getting type 1 diabetes at a very young age, and if we could move right. the age of onset by five years, if we could reduce the frequency of kids getting this disease by 10%, the impacts globally are massive. Yeah. So we have to bear in mind that, that you don't have to cure everyone, although we would love to do that, but if we can come up with findings that will allow us to identify children before they become sick mm -hmm. and undertake manipulations that will preserve the beta cells in their pancreata, that would be that's our, our goal and that would be have a massive effect yeah, on, uh, on human amazing. health. As you've heard from the scientists featured on this episode, 
There is a lot of groundbreaking research being done on determining the mechanisms of autoimmunity, but also on identifying individuals at risk of developing an autoimmune disease. The hope for the future is that we may be able to identify individuals at risk and treat them before the onset of symptoms to slow the progression of their disease. At the present moment, however, autoimmune diseases are very prevalent within our society, and each individual that is diagnosed with one has a different experience. We asked our guests about which aspects of their lives changed the most since their diagnosis. The interesting piece about this is that I think a lot of people who know me probably don't even know that I have this condition. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I learned a lot about being a patient and, and navigating the healthcare system, which I think has been really, really valuable for me, actually, as I learned to become a healthcare provider, to really see things from a different perspective and to kind of have a sense of what some of my patients go through. I certainly don't fully understand what many of my patients go through, but to have some sense of that. And I think for me, I also, I had a really big perspective shift kind of around around kind of health and well-being. And, and I think for me, I really started to have a different idea of what was important in life, which seems like very cliche to say. And it's a little hard to explain without using some of those cliches but I think for me it really it made me value when I when I do have good when I am in good health and to really kind of recognize the privilege that that gives that that provides me and and other people and to really valuable value those moments where you're able to do whatever you want to do okay I think two aspects of my life have, have changed significantly my social life has changed because now like I'm on injectables. So my injectables have to stay at four degrees. But if I want to go on away on the weekend, I have to think about how I'm going to bring them with me traveling. Mm. Or if I want to go out to a party on the weekend, but I need to be close to my medication. Like I have to leave early or whatever. Also, I can't drink, which it's not the end of the world, but it definitely has has changed things for me. It's sort of it's sort of like a social thing which I don't I can't participate anymore but I think I'm I think You're I'm, the enjo I'm enjoying driver that at all yeah, times Yeah, I'm the de yeah, exactly. But I mean, I'm enjoying that despite that. But it's just something that's changed for me. The other thing that's changed is my work life. My work life requires me to use my hands pretty much at all times and sometimes I'm just not able to do my experiments like simple things like pipetting or handling mice. I just can't do because my hands are physically so swollen that I can't do that. The other thing that has changed as well is I'm not able to rock climb anymore. And it's funny that Johanna was talking about every time we go into the rheumatologist, we have to do a survey to say how, uh, what things can you do and what things can't you do? And I always put rock climbing, like I can't do it yet, but I want to. And that was actually a really, really big part of my life, which I've sort of had to give up for the time being, but it just makes me more excited for when I'm actually able to do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would have to say first, uh, physical activity. I was a lot more engaged in sports before this condition. And, you know, I guess at various stages through like the six years that I've had it, I've been in and out of doing sports. But had this not happened to me, I feel like I would have been way more physical active than, active than I currently am. And I just noticed now that there are things that 
I need to change in my life, especially like my diet. I feel that the medications that I'm taking react negatively according to what I'm eating. So I've been having some stomach issues recently and I need to like, you know, properly maintain a certain diet. And also just being concerned about, you know, being in a place where I can take where I can take my medication when people see me take medication it's they're such like a, it, it's yeah. such a big thing mm-hmm. they're like oh like my parents I go home my parents see this like big tub or, like this big pill bottle and they're like you're taking all these pills and I'm just like yeah well that's how this is how life is now <laughs> and I'm like it's not the end of the world like I'm taking these pills and it's better than experiencing the symptoms and not taking them so I feel like just having that perspective on you that you're medicating mm-hmm. yourself I think that's a change as well Despite the drastic lifestyle changes that all of our guests have made since being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, they've maintained a positive outlook on life and have developed good coping strategies for their condition. We asked our guests about the lessons they've learned from their experiences and the advice that they would give for individuals who may be newly diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Living with an autoimmune disease, it's, it, it's, it's not a one-pill fix. It really mm-hmm. isn't. You find that an autoimmune disease is a lot like a tree and the branches are different aspects of your health. So like your mental health and your physical health and all that. But underneath all that is all the root causes of those effects. And if something something isn't right, like below, like for example, if you're experiencing chronic stress or there's something in your diet that's affecting affecting you. So with gluten, it actually resembles thyroid tissue and cause something called molecular mimicry Mm -hmm. where the body recognizes that protein as similar to a protein in your body upon learning this i started cutting out gluten and noticed i felt a lot better i noticed the inflammation in my body went down i felt like i was thinking a lot more clearly because molecular mimicry and gluten can also cause an attack on your um, cerebellum so a lot of this information was was given to me I came to realize that by addressing the root causes of my autoimmune disease, I could better manage the symptoms or the branches. I realized the clinician-patient interaction isn't a very long one. Right. Um, clinicians are pressured these days with so many patients. So I think a lot of chronic disease management is really a lot of self-care and a lot of self-seeking of this knowledge. But physicians could definitely be that gateway towards these resources. So there's a lot of great websites out there. I guess anyone living with an autoimmune disease knows that you're kind of like a teeter-totter. Like some days are going to be like really rough and you'll test your limits and you'll burn out really fast. And then some days you'll feel more balanced. And it's the key is really finding out what works for you and where do you feel the most balanced? Like what are your limits and knowing when not to cross them because you'll end up (laughs) face first like a like a teeter-totter one way or the other so the advice i would give to someone that is diagnosed with my condition is to take it seriously i feel like from at least for myself it took a while for me to take what i have seriously and i feel like that hindered me in getting the right treatment and having consistent appointments with my doctor uh, which i should have done and i feel like the progression of my disease wouldn't be where it is had i uh, sought treatment early also to be willing to seek help i feel like that's really important and you know just know that there are people that will support you and also to consistently take medication i feel like that's really an important aspect of your treatment and yeah so that's all i have (laughs) okay so (laughs) i have lots of advice because i'm pretty stubborn 
And so I've had to learn things the hard way. I think the best piece of advice I would give is to educate yourself. So educate yourself about your condition so that the life changes that you may have to make in the future doesn't come uh, as such a shock to you. And so like you sort of know what to expect. Educating yourself can also really help you to figure out ways that you can manage your condition in addition to taking your medication and visiting your specialist. So these are kind of like extra little bonuses. Another really big thing for me was making an effort to tell the important people in my life about the condition that I had. And I I honestly really did have to learn this lesson the hard way. So at first, I hid my condition from a lot of people. And this really prevented me from getting a good amount of help that honestly I really could have used. For example, my first when my first flare-up happened, a good majority of the time I spent immobile or seriously struggling to move. And I was kind of embarrassed about that. But instead of telling the people that cared about me what was really going on, I tried to just manage everything on my own. But I came to realize pretty quickly that I, I couldn't even do simple tasks like turn on the faucet because my hands were so swollen so I couldn't cook and I lost a lot of weight. And then Also, if I were to go to walk somewhere that would usually take me five minutes, it would take me 30 minutes to an hour. And instead of telling people and asking for help, and these are people that would have gladly helped me, I kind of just suffered alone. And so telling the people that you love and asking for help when you need it, I think is is a really important thing. So one last thing I really want to say is relax when you need to relax. When, When your body is telling you that you need to rest, do it because it will seriously benefit your health in the long run. And for me, it was really hard to do this because I would sort of blame myself and compare what I'm able to do now to what I used to be able to do, especially when it came to my fitness goals. So like being able to rock climb as good as I used to, things like that. It really helps if you take a break when you need to take a break and when you need to give your body some time to heal and your body will tell you when it's time for you to rest and it's really good to realize that you know it's not your fault and I think that accepting the fact that some things are just out of your control is really helpful. Our patient physician Megan also had some valuable advice for our listeners. So the first piece of advice that I would say that's really coming to me right now is don't be ashamed because I think there's this thing about illness especially when we're young is that there's this piece of kind of shame and and worry about other people's judgment and what it kind of means about you what goes along with that is is reach out to other people and I think people often feel alone when they're diagnosed with something like this especially if a lot of their friends don't seem to have anything really going on for them and I think the first thing to realize is that you never really know what's going on in someone else's life but I think the other thing is that you'd be astounded by how many people have been touched in some way by some kind of health concern or or illness or have somebody in their life that's close to them that has. And I think the other piece, which is like me as a healthcare provider, I think is finding that point person. Like it doesn't matter who it is, but finding somebody, whether it's your family physician, nurse practitioner, like anyone who can kind of be your go-to person, who can connect you with different resources and support you throughout everything because it's not just kind of the physical diagnosis with a lot of autoimmune and chronic diseases. It's, it's also like 
a huge mental piece, whether it's kind of coming to terms with having a diagnosis or coping with a flare of an autoimmune condition or, you know, there's just a multitude of different things that happen. I think that being connected with that person, they can help you through those and they can also make sure um, that you have support in, in that. The last thing is that it's also super cliche and I feel like I'm like a movie happening right now or something um like i'll cue the music as is like don't let it hold you back in a way don't let it limit you there's a lot of negatives obviously and i wouldn't kind of wish a chronic disease on anyone but i think there's also a lot of value in the experiences you have and and harness those in your own way whether it's advocating for different changes to our healthcare system or forming a support group for people with similar conditions or deciding that you want to try to care for people who have these conditions. I think kind of harness that that experience and try to use it in a positive way. I think it can really give the negative moments a meaning. We would like to thank all of our guests featured on today's episode for their time and for sharing their research and their personal experiences with us. We hope that this episode has informed you about how complex autoimmune diseases are and about the challenges faced by people who have an autoimmune disease. We'll be including a list of resources mentioned by our guests in our show notes, so make sure to check those out because they might be of benefit to you if you are also struggling with a similar condition. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to tune in for our next episode on the legalization of marijuana. If CBD actually does have this effect on THC, then why aren't we informing policy to be able to put these regulations in place to licensed producers saying, hey, we know that these high THC dominant strains are not good for A, mental health outcomes, schizophrenia and psychosis outcomes. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed in the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast.